Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicide cases occurring in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. Now, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. That's the scripture in Romans 12, 19 through 21, or Deuteronomy 32, 35, depending on what Bible you're using, the King James Version, the New World Translations, whatever one you're using. And the focus for this season, season nine, is revenge. All of these revenge, all of these cases uh, that I'm discussing for this particular season have a revenge uh, motive attached to them and they all occurred in Maryland so they had you know a clear motive of revenge or I'm gonna pay you back for whatever I feel that you did something to me and some people they just cannot let things go they would rather just happily spend the rest of their lives stewing and thinking about what they did um, Versus just letting things go and move on. And this next episode case of revenge murder that I'm going to profile is the murder, the stabbing murder of Pastor Raphael Happy Iken Willow. And just like in prior episodes, like in all the other episodes that I've, I've ever profiled, all the other seasons, a portion of this podcast will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide occurring in Maryland that may or may not have received a lot of attention and a lot of notoriety in the press. It may have been forgotten about. It needs to be reopened. Um, it needs to be talked about and discussed. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the beating murder of 15-year-old Mary Kathleen Grant. Alright, listen y'all. This episode might piss a lot of people off, but I'm just going to speak my truth. It is what it is. I am no expert on religion, but I, I will say this. I was raised as a strict Jehovah's Witness, and it was a lot of things that we... <laughs> As kids, or basically, I should say myself as a kid, because look, I'm not going to speak for my brothers and sisters growing up uh, the way they did. Whatever. I'm going to speak for myself as a kid. Um, it was a lot of things that, you know, that I was forbidden to do. And I was taught a lot about God or Jehovah, as Jehovah Witnesses call God or whatnot or whatever. And I'm telling you. The teachings that we, as kid, as I was taught, even now, you know, we're living in the last days, and you know, I'm not gonna lie, I've, I've literally been hearing that phrase that we're living in the last days ever since I was six years old. I'm not six no more, and literally, I've been living each day. Almost like it was my last because I was always, always under the impression or idea that I could be destroyed at Armageddon at any minute 
that it could be it could happen at any time you know and as a kid that the trauma and stuff you know that I was taught or told you know over and over again I'm gonna say it <laughs> it's kind of like traumatic the stuff that me again I'm, I'm gonna say ah because when I say we, I grew up with a lot of brothers and sisters, but I'm not even going to speak for them. I can only speak for myself when I say that the stuff that I had to endure as a as a kid, you know, confessing to grown men, elders, what we call them, because you get kissed by a boy or fingered by a boy when you're like 12, 13, <laughs> and you got to confess that you, you're the trauma of you feeling like, oh my God, I got to tell you know, so the trauma of saying stuff like that to a group of grown men, because as Jehovah Witnesses, all of that was sinning. Basically, all of that was completely forbidden. At least that's what I was. I don't know what's going on in Kingdom Halls now. But when I was growing up, that was a big sin. And man, trust me, the, the stories I could tell you about all that, trust me, whoa, that could be a whole nother series in itself. Divided into episodes. Trust me. I kid you not. But we are not going to talk about me. And how I was raised. And how being raised as a Jehovah Witnesses. Or being raised as one of Jehovah Witnesses. Um, how that had a huge impact on my life. And even what I do now. Especially with being told no. And having doors slammed in your face. Because I'm telling you. I was one of those witnesses. That would be going from door to door. And all of that. <laughs> so... All that we're not going to really dredge all that up. This next case of revenge homicide. Um, that did have a religious twist to it. Or angle to it. And it also shows how somebody can twist the words of religion. And where that can lead to deadly results. 53 year old pastor Raphael Happy Iken Willow was a self-made pastor from Africa. Raphael believed that he first met Jesus in 1992 and in 2005 Raphael supposedly graduated from a fourth dimension university in 2005 and Raphael told anybody who would listen that this education that he received from what he called angels over a span of 12 years, he, Raphael, he actually convinced people or followers, I should say, that he, basically he got his education from angels and that he was taught everything um, that basically ranged from uh, general religious studies to basically how to become a doctor in spiritual sciences which that's what he said he had his degree in, which that's what he eventually became, quote-unquote, a.k.a. a pastor or whatever. So in 2002, Raphael, he, he came from, he, he basically came from Africa to the United States with a whole new mission and a whole new set of goals. Now, Raphael believed that he was, even though he... Em, em, he migrated uh, to the uh, United States, but he believed that he was sent to the United States from by God to help heal people who were suffering from cancer. This was the twist. And this cancer 
Raphael believed was supposedly caused by witchcraft. And he had this mission or this message to spread to obtain even more followers or believers because he believed that real doctors or real physicians or people that specialize in, in treatment cancer, I forget what they called. Um, he believed that um, these physicians, that they didn't want to spread the truth or his truth or tell people about this cure for cancer that he had. He felt like that these doc the real doctors were preventing him or forbidding him um, from spreading this cure that he supposedly had. Like he was some type of Dr. Sidibe or whatever. And Raphael preached that his, basically, he said that his, because he had this cure for cancer, that his life was being constantly threatened by these doctors because he had the real cure and that they had nothing but fake treatments that was designed to keep people coming back for more unnecessary overpriced treatments. They was billing Medicare. You know, they were killing people. He was spreading. This was basically his message. And he went as far as to say um, and to claim and insinuate that these fake doctors or these witchcraft doctors, what he called them, that they were causing the cancer in the first place that these people had. He was like, they were putting the cancer in these people, causing them to get sick and stuff like that. And this is what he was spreading. And he, this beloved pastor, he started a campaign to raise awareness to what he was trying to accomplish and also to what he believed was the result of doctors causing all this cancer. And Raphael, more importantly, he was convinced that only he had the cures for this cancer. Now, this self-made pastor that was taught by angels, he had a goal. Of course he had a goal. He had a goal of raising $6 million to bring awareness to his beliefs and his teachings. But throughout his time in being in the United States, he only raised up about $25 of his $6 million goal. Either way, um, Raphael moved to Windsor Mill, Maryland with his wife and his two kids. And he opened up a homemade church in the basement of his apartment. Um, well, the basement of his home in the 7800 block of Liberty, Liberty Road in Windsor Mill. And he called it the Rahamas Ministry International Church. And of course, Raphael spread his teachings and his mission to obtain or to get this money to anybody who would listen. And you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised uh, who would actually listen to this. I mean, it, it sounds kind of like weird and outlandish with me saying it out loud now. But you'd be surprised who... With pastors and the stuff that they say and the stuff that they they spread, you'd be surprised who was sitting there listening one day and who needs to hear exactly what uh, he was saying. And one of those people who listened and followed faithfully was the wife of 41-year-old Daniel Patrick Degato. Daniel's wife, she would go to these meetings that Raphael would have in his basement, um, which he conducted like a normal church. And Daniel's wife would listen intently. She would listen faithfully. She would listen loyally. And she would do this like her life depended on it. And she believed. She believed the pastor. 
she believed in his teachings. She believed in his message. And Daniel's wife would take in all these teachings and beliefs that Pastor Raphael um, was spreading and whatnot. And, you know, she followed what he said, you know, what uh, she had to do and stuff like that. And slowly, as time built up, around about a year after going to him faithfully and stuff like that, Daniel's wife started changing in a way that Daniel didn't like, nor in a way that he was used to. So Daniel started blaming this new church or this pastor that his wife had been seeing. And slowly and over time, Daniel's wife started uh, practicing this, these new teachings and these new beliefs. And more and more, more and more over time, it started building up. Daniel started believing that Raphael or this church was actually controlling his wife. He felt like it, he was controlling his wife's actions, her thoughts, her beliefs. And he thought that he was doing this through the teachings and stuff that she was learning from the church. And he kind of narrowed it down. And he was like, you know, she started changing from when she first started seeing this new pastor. So the buildup just kept building up and building up and building up like a tea kettle. And it was causing major tension in their home and in their marriage, and in their family, and I'm telling you, he was blaming everything all on this church and all on this pastor. So, it all took a violent and deadly toll on Saturday, August the 19th, 2017, a little before 10 in the morning. Daniel drove his van to the pastor's church with his wife in the passenger seat to confront Raphael. Daniel could not take it no more. The way he felt that somehow his wife was being controlled by this pastor. He ain't believing none of them teachings. He ain't believing none of that fake angel shit. He ain't believing none of that. He felt like, you know what? Uh-uh. This is not going to happen. This is not going down. So the, the realization and the accusation that this fake pastor had some sort of a weird spiritual hold over his wife, it just kept playing back and forth, back and forth over and over in Daniel's head. While all of this was replaying itself over and over in his head, like a movie, all of a sudden, Raphael and his wife pull up to their home. Raphael parked his car, got settled. Um, he opened his car door and got out. He had pulled in the parking lot behind, his, behind where he lived at, and just seeing the pastor get out of his car with all this rage and everything built all up in him, um, it, it made Daniel so mad, so enraged, so much that when Raphael got out, out of his car, he started unloading, and he saw him unloading stuff out of the trunk of his car. Daniel put his foot on the gas of his van, a van, and drove directly into Raphael, knocking him on the ground and shattering a copier that Raphael had been carrying. How many people have fantasized about just taking your car and just ramming it into somebody? Well, that's exactly what he did. Then it just happened so fast. That had to have been like a thrill because Daniel said later that he couldn't even control it. Once Raphael, Raphael was on the ground wondering like what the fuck was going on, Daniel jumped out his van holding a big ass hunting knife. And while this fake pastor was down on the ground, Daniel viciously and violently 
stuck the knife into Raphael's head, leg, and neck 13 times. Daniel did this all while his wife sat in the passenger seat in total disbelief, watching in complete horror, knowing like he was not to be fucked with. After Daniel st stabbed Raphael, he calmly drove himself to the Howard County Detention Center and at around 4 p.m. that same day, he calmly walked into the police station and told the officers there that he had just stabbed someone and that he was turning himself in for it. Meanwhile, when Daniel rammed his van into Raphael and stabbed him, the whole act was caught on nearby, like on a nearby store's like surveillance camera that recorded like the whole murder. Plus, a witness saw the whole thing. The police were called, and when they showed up, Raphael was rushed to Sinai Hospital with multiple stab wounds and defensive lacerations, and the pastor was pronounced dead shortly after he got there. You know, when the detectives asked Daniel, like, was this an accident? You know, was this on purpose? Did he mean to do this? You know, was this murder planned? Um, Daniel was like, he was 100% certain in his his answer or his response. He didn't hesitate. He told the detectives that he could not he just could not control the urge to kill the pastor. Daniel said in his words, Yes, I tried to control it, but I just can't control it. It was just too much. Today was the end of it. Whew. Arrested and charged with first-degree murder, Daniel was, was held at the detention center without bail. Daniel quickly pled guilty to first-degree murder, and on March the 29th, 2019, Daniel was sentenced to a life sentence with all but 50 years suspended. Now, Daniel does have the possibility for parole after he has served at least 25 of those 50 years. After Daniel was sentenced, his defense attorney released a statement to the press saying, in his words, according to the Baltimore Sun, it says, it seems clear that the court took into account the evidence we presented that Mr. Degato was pushed beyond normal human limits. Mr. Degato expressed sincere remorse and we're very glad that they saw fit to extend some mercy for the facts and provide some hope that he will be able to return to his family one day instead of spending the rest of his life in prison. Now, like I said, I had to choose this. I selected this case as one of Maryland's most notorious uh, revenge murders because look at the obvious. That man snapped. He couldn't take it no more. I mean, I do believe that he had, you know, other issues maybe because, you know, when you I looked at Mr. Degato's record, he did have some other violent stuff back in, in his past that he did or whatever. But... I remember when I heard about this case, I was like, wait a minute, what? He ran him over and then stabbed him in front of everybody, and this was 10 o'clock in the afternoon? I was like, what was he doing with his wife? That was the first thing that came to my mind when I first heard about this case. But I was like, damn, even for Baltimore. Jeez, this was crazy. And they said he was a pastor? I know people, I really, I really, 
me personally, I had to go a little bit deeper and see, like, why did why would he do this? And I knew it had to have something to do with religion. I knew it. I just knew it. And something about falsehoods and what they were spreading, you know, either that or something even more foul and sinister. But I just knew it had a religious uh, fakeness. Uh, notion to it or that uh, some type of annotation stamped onto it. I knew it had that type of motive to it or something that a pastor was saying. So um, I'm not saying that he deserved it. Nobody deserves it. But I was not surprised when I found out that that was that type of motive was linked to it. Like some type of something what a pastor was saying or making another person believe and it was causing some problems. I knew that had something to do with it. And it just seems like it's always the women who fall for stuff like this. Like women. You know, I just, you know, it's hard to believe. I mean, some men do believe this occult stuff. But for the most part, it's like women. Like if you really need something to believe in, like, wow. Like angels. And it's just, come on. Sometimes you got to do the math and just wake up and smell. I used to say, to say I, used, I used to say, wake up and smell the KY. Forget about waking up and smell the coffee. Wake up and smell the KY because this don't make sense. It don't make sense. Um, speaking of don't make sense, Mr. Degato, um, they said he was remorseful and all of that. He has tried every single year since he's been locked up to get out. And what I mean by that, motion after motion after motion after appeal after appeal, just filing every little thing, every, every little habeas corpus, whatever that he could find, to complain, to get out. And I'm like, look, that is not going to get you out no earlier than them 25 years. Because bottom line, even though you felt like he deserved it, you still ran him over and stabbed him in broad daylight. And he did not deserve that just because he was, you know, spreading false teachings. Your wife just shouldn't have believed it. You know, <laughs> basically, um... That man, they deserve to die for that. So, but either way, like I said, um, I did select this as one of Maryland's most notorious revenge cases because of the obvious. And, um, whew, just people need to be mindful of what they believe in. <sighs> wow. And how it, like, affects others. I mean, that pastor could have been telling her, Oh, I need you to do this. Don't do this for your husband and don't do that. Or like some religions be telling you, uh, don't do this. Uh, you should do this for your kids. I mean, I had one time they told me I was 17. Uh, you need to go give her a beat or spanking. I mean, come on, stuff like that. It's like that can have, that's detrimental to a household. And that can have disastrous effects for people that's not growing up in that household. They don't know what that person is going through. So, like I said, you know, wow. Mm. Yeah, definitely I chose this one as one of Maryland's most notorious revenge cases um, of homicide occurring in Maryland. Okay, moving right into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast since I started... Although a lot of attention 
and focus is placed on um, notorious homicide cases that you may have heard about or they may have received a lot of attention and, and press from uh, the media or Murder, Inc. or something like that, Baltimore Sun or uh, WBAL. This podcast, it also shines a light on the many, many homicide cases that we see in the state of Maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or a lot or any mention at all in the press. Or you may just hear one or two sentences about it for maybe a day or two. Uh, these type of homicides are so common in Maryland that there's not a lot of time in this podcast to just focus really on just one of them. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this beautiful and lovely and luxurious state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than just the initial report of it. And that's the number of homicides that are unsolved or that um, are forgotten about um, in this state is completely, it's staggering really. It's unbelievably, it's like, it's obvious that homicide detectives, they cannot do everything by themselves. They're not magicians. They can't just wave a magic wand and then all of a sudden your case is solved. It's, it's, you know, solving homicide cases is not like what you might see on TV, like the first 48 or Fatal Attraction type of shows. In the state of Maryland, it's not like that at all. At all. Homicide detectives, they're often overworked. They're underpaid, unappreciated, outnumbered, under stress, and flat out beaten down all the time. Kind of like being a police officer. I mean, but what happens to the cases where homicides detectives are faced with where they have nothing, where nobody is talking at all? What happens when the cases are absolutely like no clues whatsoever? They just got a body. That's it. What happened to cases where um, there's no evidence, no witnesses, no motive, or cases where because um, what happened to the type of cases that, you know, it seems like as a family member, it just seems like, I don't know, detectives might be slacking a little bit because the victim might have been, you know, transgender. Y'all might as well tell the truth. They might have looked at all oh, they, they had it coming. This was sex related. Or what about the cases where you, you, you come across detectives and it's like drug penurial on the scene. Oh, this is drug related. So they're going to put these cases to the back burner. This person might have been selling drugs and blah, blah, blah. They just had it coming. It was just one drug dealer killing another drug dealer. What, is, what about those cases that seems like literally is like nothing is done? I mean, did these cases really, did a killer just really simply get away with it? I mean, it just seems like literally nothing is done with these type of forgotten homicides, not because nobody cares anymore, including the detective, but it's because the public simply forgot all about it because we've been outnumbered or bombarded by new homicide cases, especially in the summertime in Maryland, or at least in Baltimore. It's like we have been immune to homicides in this state. Well, this particular portion of this podcast is where that focus tends it where that focus is gonna be back back we're gonna focus back on that. On this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety. On the flip side, 
a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserved. And with all of that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the beating murder of 15-year-old Mary Kathleen Grant. Although Mary lived in the 200 block of Vernon Avenue in Glen Burnie, she was a teenager who ran away from home a lot and hitchhiked rides. Like, wow, hitchhike. Y'all remember that? Sheesh. I was a runaway too. But anyway, um, Mary was last seen on January 9th, 1989, when she told her twin sister that she was going to a friend's house. She was seen walking towards, walking away from a 7-Eleven, but, um, and said she was going to a friend's house who lived on American Circle. But unfortunately, Mary never made it to this friend's house. When Mary's parents hadn't heard from her, within 10 days, on January the 19th, 1989, they reported her mission to the Anne Arundel County Police Department. 10 days later, on January the 29th, 1989, Mary's nude body was found in a wooded area off of West Pasadena Road near Jumper's Hole in Pasadena. The 15-year-old had been beaten to death with a blunt object and had multiple injuries. For a minute, detectives didn't even really know who she was until they searched the missing persons database and discovered that Mary's parents had reported her missing earlier. Right off the bat, detectives believed that Mary knew who killed her because she was killed in an illegally homemade dumping ground area that was known to be some kind of party spot or meeting area where other teens or other uh, teenage runaways hung out a, a, a lot. The detectives believed that Mary may have willingly went to the area and then maybe she uh, fought her killers or killers when they tried to force her to do something that she didn't want to do. The detectives were baffled until they uh, charged and arrested a suspect three years later, but because of insufficient evidence and no witness statements of anybody coming forward with any additional information, the charges against that suspect were eventually dropped, and Murray's case went back to being a cold case. So, which is weird. And sometimes cases like that are weird and hard to solve. Because even though, I'm not saying this person did anything, especially since he was charged and released, but speaking hypothetically, if you have nobody to prove that this person did whatever and nobody is coming forward and nobody is saying anything, then you have no case. So even though if you know if somebody did something and you can't prove it and nobody won't come forward, whoop-de-freaking-do because guess what? You have no case. And that's looking at it from a detective's standpoint. You might know in your heart who did whatever. But if nobody comes forward and say anything and take that, that case to justice, then guess what? You have no case. So y'all already know what I'm about to say. If you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this 34-year-old homicide, 
this 34-year-old unsolved homicide, please call the Anne Arundel County Police Department at 410-222-4731. Or you can call 410-222-4700. You can also call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. And on your numeric keypad, those numbers are 866-756-2587. You can also download whatever tip you have to P3 Tips or submit a tip online at Metro Crime Stoppers. Once again, uh, those numbers are people, the Anne Arundel County Police Department at 410-222-4731. Or you can call 410-222-4700. You can also call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. And on your numeric keypad, those numbers are one. Those numbers are 866-756-2587. Or you can download whatever tip you have to P3 Tips with an S or submit a tip online at Metro Crime Stoppers. You can remain anonymous, people. You can say whatever you got to say and just hang the phone up. Give the detective something to work with. I mean, clear your conscience. People be surprised. You'd be surprised what that would do to a lot of people. Honestly. Seriously. Really. Thank you for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access uh, prior episodes and all that other good stuff. Let me mention that if you have tuned into me at all last season, I did tell my listeners that I was producing a true crime documentary that was based off of my very first episode, the episode that profiled um, accused child killers, Adon Canella and Policarpio Espinoza. And yep, the documentary is now currently available it was supposed to be shown on Hulu, uh, 2B, and all that other stuff. But because of the extreme graphic nature of the documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading murders of three innocent kids, networks don't like me. <laughs> they shot away from me and they told me basically that the documentary, they compared it to porn. And I was like, what? They said it was too graphic, too much for network TV. And basically, in so many words, um, they were like, nobody want to see, nobody's interested in the beheading of three innocent, illegal kids. I guess because the documentary does include the actual, um, you know, portions of the crime scene photos and what happens in this case. Um, they're not interested I'm not going to edit or cut my documentary no more than what I've already done because of the brutal nature of the crime scene photos. I mean, I believe that adds to the emphasis of the innocence of these two defendants, Sedan Cadella and Paula Carpio Espinoza. I'm calling them defendants. I mean, <laughs> like I'm an attorney or something. But in order for me to fully emphasize the fact that they did not commit this horrible homicide, I had to show what was done to these kids with no sugar coating, no cut cards, no none of that. That's not what I do. That's not what I've never done. So um, there's no way that 
the victim's uncle and cousin committed these murders that these detectives or whoever was involved in this is trying to make us believe. They just basically wanted to convict somebody and they had to convict somebody walking up the street. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see who I believe that these murders were committed by. I could, I could be wrong. I just who know who they weren't committed by. So either way, the documentary is available via email only. It's available through a link called We Transfer. Now, when I have been sending, a lot of people have been requesting it. When you get it, you do have a week to download it. Like they don't give you like months and months and there's something that you click on. Like when you feel like it. Um, it's when I send you the email or the link with the email, you have to click on, you got about a week to watch it. Otherwise the link expire and you just have to request it again, um, through the website again. So it's not for everybody's eyes. And this documentary was not produced to make money or to, for likes or all of that, or to up my podcast downloads or nothing like that. It's, which is another reason why I didn't go the network route. So, um, I can't, and I won't be censored. And especially when it comes to true crime and facts and, and injustice that I believe is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, please visit my website at MarilynsMostNotoriousMurders.com. You have to subscribe to the mailing list by leaving your email address and you have to send me uh, an email request that you specifically want to see the documentary and I will email it to you the video within 24 hours within 24 hours you're gonna get a link that says it's gonna come through we transfer you click on the link and boom you're gonna be exposed to the documentary I have to warn you though the video is very graphic um, to me it's not that much graphic than anything else you've been exposed to like I said um, I just seen a documentary with Jeffrey Dahmer and they actually, I've never seen, um, I've heard, of course, everybody hears about Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, cutting body parts and stuff like that. But did you actually see the actual head in the refrigerator? I saw that one on the documentary the other day. That had me having nightmares and I'm into true crime. I was like, what? They showed the actual head in the refrigerator. I was like, wow, a picture of it. So if you can handle that to me. They, it's not that bad. I don't know why. I ain't got time with Hulu and TV and all them. But anyway, um, like I said, they turned it down because they said it was too graphic. And also, to be honest with you, I think they turned it down because I believe that with the state of the world that we living in, the way, you know, Mexicans and all of that, nobody cares about these two illegal immigrants. They looking like they weren't supposed to be over here anyway. You know, they're looking like they're locked up serving two life sentences. One of them is about to be released anyway, but he's about to be deported back to Mexico. Um, they're serving, and the other one is serving a life sentences for crimes that they basically did not commit. Nobody gives a fuck about that. And that's why I produced a documentary to open up people's eyes. So, like I said, you're trying to see it, send me an email request, go to the website, I'm going to send it out to you and let you be the judge. And while you're at the website, please be sure to, to uh, subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out The Real 
the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day out of nowhere and just boom, I like true crime. I'm going to start a podcast. Nah, mm-mm. you better do the math and do the history and really run it up on me because that's not really hardly true. It's a real therapeutic message to this whole world of true crime, of gore and mayhem and all that type of st- weird stuff that I live in. And if you click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why um, I live in this world, why I'm so crazy, why I'm so weird, why I'm so fascinated with true crime. And if while you're on my website, which is um, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com, Maryland spelled MDS, be sure to check out the all the prior episodes that you may have missed with all the different seasons that we have focused on, like um, relationship murders, <laughs> suicide murders. You're going to be like, wow, I, I remember this one, especially people that's from like Maryland, particularly in Baltimore. You're like, man, I remember this one. That well, I did I even did a, a episode, I mean, a season where we did our profile, like murders that were like sick, twisted, pedophile related. Um, if you're into this type of weird stuff like that, trust me, there's a season on there that's going to like blow your mind. Or even last season, I think we focused on parasite killings. Um, you can find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled, um, uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, uh, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. I do need to come out with... Uh, sequels to both of these actually and I'm trying I'm working on it actually um and my local you can also find links to my local bestsellers um which was entitled until I get caught the true story of a serial rapist in Baltimore which is not uh murder based but trust me it's true crime based and you need every female need to read that book that book will never get old it's like a manual trust me um Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. You can find, that's one of my um, local bestsellers back then when The Drug of Choice, this is like a book based off in the 90s when back, like nowadays it's pills. Everybody know that it's pills, but back then it was crack and heroin. So, um, you know, for my recovering addicts, you know, that's a book that you should check out. You can also check me out on season one of Payback, which airs for the TV One Network. Um... You can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV One's Justice By Any Means, TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, uh, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the Element Network, where I profiled teen killers, Sarah Citroni, and uh, Jason DeLong, who were also profiled for, they were both profiled for episodes um, for this podcast. Um, you can also check out my latest article for, which I did for the Crime Report, where I'm also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast and my opinions on, you know, certain topics related to true crime. And uh, last but not least... Many of my listeners have been messaging me on how they can donate to this podcast on my website, uh, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. 
there is a donate icon on the website where you can contribute via PayPal, Anchor, I think it's Kofi, it's C-O-F-I, whatever, how you pronounce it. Or you can buy um, the icon, which is called Buy Me A Coffee. Um, you don't have to, but, you know, <laughs> they keep asking me. So thanks so much for your support on that in any way. Um, please, please, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast, though. That would help out, too. And be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland, it will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.